I'm surprised. It takes about 35 minutes for somebody to mention the smell. 35 minutes into the booksellers, a behind-the-scenes documentary set in New York City's rare book scene and the fascinating people who inhabit that world. And the smell, of course, is that distinct bookstore smell. The smell of papers and books and hope. It, it smells like home. Visiting a bookstore involves all the senses, that distinct smell. I enjoy eavesdropping on the conversations, hearing the book debates, and book recommendations between friends and lovers, former lovers. The organized sites, shelf after shelf, the colors and the covers, so much eye candy. My eyes open wide trying to take it all in, in one giant gulp like a python. The fragile books inviting a soft, revered touch. The fifth and final sense I haven't acknowledged is taste. But uh, when it comes to taste, it's up to you what you read. <laughs> if you ever need book recommendations, hit me up. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host and book club pal, Sam Yunin. And today's episode is all, I like big books, I cannot lie. A conversation with D.W. Young, director of The Booksellers. Which you must watch if only to behold the literary splendor of Jay Walker's Library of the Human Imagination in Ridgefield, Connecticut. What the what? You gotta see this thing. As you're about to hear, this charming documentary is not a vintage book hunt. Rather, it is filled with dynamic characters as only New York City can offer. This is a documentary about the city as much as it is about readers and collectors and, and books and science fiction and old school hip-hop and that time Fred Leibowitz lent David Bowie a book. Now that, that is modern love. Books are incredible. I'm grateful my parents raised me to be a reader. As such, childhood is a good place to kick off this My Summer Layer interview with bookseller's director, D.W. Young. Hey, uh, Sammy, it's uh, D.W. Young calling. Hey, how are you? You hanging in there? Yeah, doing okay. You? Yeah, same. It's actually, in a weird way, like we were talking on email, it's a good time to read. It is a good time to read. It's sort of, you got to find something that suits the moment somehow. Mm-hmm. I've also been watching a lot of films, but some films just don't feel right right now, you know? Yeah. Are you reading anything in particular that you found that matches the moment? I've been reading this, um, the third book of um, Hilary Mantle's books about Thomas Cromwell. Mm-hmm. I'm reading the new one, The Mirror and the Light, which is, uh, I don't know, the, the, the politics and craziness of Tudor England <laughs> are sort of an escape, but they also are like pretty intense. So I don't know, that kind of makes you feel okay about how intense things are, too. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, D.W. Young, for joining me on my summer layer. Um, my name's Sammy uh, Yunan. I want to start at the beginning because, like a number of individuals in the documentary, you actually had a uh, childhood experience in the rare book business for a little bit. Do you have any takeaways from that experience? Well, I wouldn't call it an experience so much in the rare book as much as just like a childhood, important like childhood memories and moments of being in a bookstore at my aunt and uncle's bookstore in Philadelphia um, when I was young. And it wasn't that frequently that I got to go there because it was far away. But, um, you know, that was like an important place to me when I did get to go. And so I, I guess I do have a real sort of particular personal fondness or affinity for not just bookstores. And that's just from also just, you know, frequenting bookstores in life and being, you know, a reader and so on. But I think just on a personal level, also having had a chance to ever so briefly 
maybe be behind the counter or be in the back room with my aunt and uncle or man the cart out front, you know, the bargain cart sometimes mm-hmm. on the street when I was like 12 or something. So that just made me feel, I think, a little connected and a little passionate personally about making a movie about books and rare books. It, in a weird way, it almost feels like it's a bit of a, like a second home or something. Is that kind of accurate? I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but I, I think um, I think I feel very comfortable in places with lots of books and with people who, my man and uncle were pretty extreme on the the, the eccentric book people front side, you know? Yeah. So I feel, but I love them very dearly, especially my aunt in particular. Um, so I, I guess maybe I feel very comfortable with people in that world yeah. um, personally. And so, I, and I enjoy being in their company and talking to them. So much so that you, even your producer is in that world, right? Yeah. Dan um, Wexler, who's one of our, there's three sort of main producers, Dan, myself, and Judith Mizraki, who's also my wife. We're, and we've worked together many times um, on other projects. We're kind of the main production team, creative, collaborative team. Um, and the, the the idea really originated with Dan. He's he's done some film work, but he's also um, his day job, so to speak, is is as a rare book dealer in New York. And uh, you know, he's pretty well known. He knows a lot of people. Um, and he, I think, like seven years ago, mentioned that he'd always thought that would make a great documentary. You know, and that. Also, the fact that no one had ever done it, that the world deserved to be, you know, represented, I think, and, you know, on film somehow. And um, the Judas and I were really immediately enthusiastic about the idea um, and what we could do with it. And, uh, you know, in a documentary, in the documentary world, if you, any, if you find an idea that no one's really done before, that's pretty uncommon these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was also um, promising. But we just were engaged in other stuff. You know, it took a while to finally get the project to happen yeah but so that was like about three years ago that we started really making the movie you'd expect like a documentary about booksellers to be like chasing down like i don't know a first edition charles dickens or something but you have like uh characters like henry uh westsells and there's like a whole sci-fi tangent there um you have another um dealer uh, who's looking for like early hip hop documents and magazines and kind of collecting that kind of early stuff? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is there, are you surprised or delighted that like in a documentary about booksellers that you can go down these unexpected roads? Uh, super delighted. I was like super. So I I was a huge sci-fi reader as a kid. Um, I still like sci-fi a lot, you know. Uh, and the fact that well, Henry is an incredibly you know multi-talented person. Um, he's also an Arabist. He speaks French, Arabic. He's been. He's a writer. He's a poet. He's a publisher. You know, he's an incredibly versatile, you know, accomplished person. So, but that said, he was happened to be at this time. He's he's still an avid sci-fi collector and reader, and he was happening to be putting out his books. So, the fact that we could sort of tie in a few things that I care about, and they're a little maybe a little more fringe on the, in the, in the traditional book, rare book world. And, and certainly there are valuable sci-fi collectible books and people do collect them absolutely avidly. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe as you're saying, it's not like when your average person thinks of rare books and first, you know, they don't think sci-fi necessarily. Yeah. Um, so I think that, but that was a big part of what we want to do is expand the sense of what this world is, because it is a lot more than just your traditional literary first editions, you know, canonical first editions or whatever. Um, and to bring it up kind of more to this present moment where this this desire to find stuff that's speaking to more younger generations is a big part, I think, of what the newer dealers are kind of into. So, you know, and then Sarita, 
and her hip hop archiving um, was I was super excited about that and psyched to be able to have that in there because you know '90s hip hop was music and it meant a lot to me and that I listened to a lot and um, you know she's really um, I think also doing something that's expanding a little bit what falls under the bare book trade and Arthur uh, Fournier who's the dealer kind of led us to her um, he's also doing stuff that he I think he's, he had asked me once do you think I what I do is entirely like would people consider it rare book dealing entirely and I think that's like an interesting question you know mm-hmm. um, and I think it is more or less but like the boundaries are kind of moving a bit I think that's a good thing um, and that, that's promising for the future so it was great to get all that stuff in and, and not make it just about kind of the, the classic idea of what this what the trade is what yeah. is it? and we include that too of course because that's part of the tradition and the history of it and the established side but um, it was cool to be able to go further than that and I think hopefully that opens it up also to other people viewing the movie who might not be interested in those things but maybe are interested in some of this other stuff this is a tangent, but since you were talking about like the the sci-fi stuff as well, like some of the covers for the sixties and seventies books, even like obscure books or books that didn't sell well, they're incredible yeah. covers. Like I don't oh. know who the, who the artists are or anything like that, but it's like there's a few that every time you see them in like a used bookstore, you're like, I gotta pick this up. This is amazing. Yeah, they really like went for stuff. You know what I mean? They like let themselves get a little crazy. I feel like um, now I feel it's a bit more restrained. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I find now it's a little bit more, um, they kind of categorize it. Like, so if this has right. got like a spaceship or something, they'll put like an alien on it on the, or sort of like a, a UFO or something on the front. You know what I mean? So you kind of get these like semiotic cues of what this right. type of sci-fi is now. Yeah, they, they, yeah, exactly. They categorize it like you said. I think that's totally true. Yeah. So as we mentioned already, like you talked about like some of the early hip hop and stuff like that. Um, and as you're following around these booksellers, this isn't just a, a movie about booksellers. This, is this also a movie about New York City as well? Because New York City has all these cultures, the hip-hop, the the booksellers. So was this like your attempt, I guess, at also kind of like a, um, capturing a, a moment of time in New York City? Yeah, I think so. I don't think that's the primary impetus. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, a, it's like a um, tangential benefit and, and a thread in the movie is definitely that the setting matters, and the setting is, you know, an, a, a, a fundamental part of the fabric of the movie. And I think, you know, New York has been represented so many ways, so, and that's great, but also it means it's easy to just kind of repeat the, the same thing over and over again. Um, but I think, you know, this gave us a, a perspective on New York that's not the standard perspective entirely, and so that's interesting, hopefully. Um, it's a little bit of a different aspect of New York than you're used to. And also, it does get at something I love about New York, having lived here for 25 years, um, is that New York has all these, like, hidden rooms and places and and businesses that are on second floors or in weird neighborhoods. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily know about them unless you're kind of in, in what, involved in whatever they transact in or whatever, you know, that side of things is. But if you – sometimes you stumble across them. I love that there's always, like, this hidden New York – um, out there to, to find, and maybe it's a little harder to find nowadays because of how you know expensive everything in the city is. But I think you just have to look further out, and and you know it's still there. And I think they represent us. I think the Bear Book Trade represents a, a component of that, and that's cool to sort of see that because most of the dealers don't have storefronts anymore. It's too expensive. So there's this whole business going on, but it's kind of going on invisibly for the most part, except for these occasional moments when there's these when there are the fairs. 
and then you know they're sort of visible to the public. But for the most part, it's kind of behind closed doors business. Yeah, and that's what I find fascinating. That's what I mean by like is is like a a subplot almost like New York City, because you have this ebb and flow. You had this like statistic that at one point there were 368 bookstores in New York City right. along that one row there, especially. And then now they're down to like 79 uh, bookstores. But there's still all this like book businesses you're saying, like just kind of going on behind the scenes in the shadows. Yeah. So, well, oh, no, I was gonna say, yeah, well, I, I think in the most overt sense, the diminishment of bookstores in the city was the most visible sort of outward aspect of New York that we did absolutely want to kind of represent. Mm-hmm. Right. Because like I remember I've seen so many bookstores go just in the time I've been in New York um, and they're not not so much the rare ones, but, you know, Gotham and St. Mark's bookstore, et cetera, like bookstores I frequent, you know, and I, I really miss um, books and company on the Upper East Side was, you know, one. Um, so I think that that changing kind of landscape of New York with the reduction of bookstores, I think the city's like a lesser place for that personally. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And so I think we wanted to make sure we – it's one, to just remember some of those places and kind of have a record of them, but two, to just kind of address or acknowledge or, you know, that the city is a lesser place a little bit for the loss of all those bookstores. And it's nice to see that, that, that there is this resurgence. I don't think it's unlikely it'll ever go back to what it was, you know, mm-hmm. but it's nice to see that there is a real resurgence of smaller bookstores happening here and there, and that's bringing some life back to, to those that side of the city you know yeah i forgot who it was but one of the people in the film said it's kind of like it's the it's disheartening a little bit when uh when a bookstore closes it's like part of the city kind of dies almost yeah bookstores and i feel the same way with movie theaters um you know you lose a movie theater that's like mm-hmm. kind of a big deal if, if if those are the things you care about i guess you know but and but that makes the moment we're in right now kind of particularly i think for those of us who really for whom bookstores and movie theaters are kind of some of the main reasons we maybe we live in a city, you know, yeah. um, the, the, the threat that they're under, you know, with the current moment is pretty troubling. Yeah. Cause it's access to culture. Totally. All right. It's kind of the cult. It's some of the cultural like backbone of, of a city. Right. I mean, you have the, yes, you have the, the sort of the mainstream cultural institutions like your museums and so forth. But after that, I mean, where does the culture reside? I mean, you got your, I mean, bookstores, music stores, movie theaters, some dance, et cetera. But, you know, without that, it's just, you fear it's just restaurants and high-end boutiques and, right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) tourist traps. I don't know. (laughs) So your documentary acknowledges as well, uh, and we just picked up on this, that the the number of bookstores are disappearing. And there's, you kind of um, have some of the usual culprits. uh, You kind of explore some of the usual culprits like the internet and the... uh, um, some of the big bookstores and things like that. But are we also losing, like, our readers? Like, because a lot of the booksellers that you talk to in the documentary, they're on the hunt. They're searching through stacks. And we used to do that with analog things like record shops and things like yeah. that, where you'd go to the thrift store and you try and find this hidden gem. And, like, and you're not, like, a collector or dealer or anything like that. You're just a dude who loves music. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we've kind of lost that ability. Or do you feel that we've lost that ability to kind of curate and to kind of get out there and find stuff within all the stacks? I think it's been, and that's like, I think when people like in the film kind of wax romantic about the old days, mm-hmm. I think that's really what a lot of them are talking about. Um, it's not to say like it doesn't still exist, but I think it exists at such a lesser level 
than it used to before the internet. Um, and that's kind of like a real bummer for people, I think, that for, you know, hundreds of years, like, you, you, if you were knowledgeable and you had an, an, and you, you could, you know, get out there and root around in the right place and have an eye for why some find, finding stuff or, you know, an, an intuition for things, you could really find a lot of, I think, good material that you could sell then and, you know, hopefully you find, like, that gem that's really worth something, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that, that hunt was part of the hunt was very, very physical, very hands-on, very, I think you traveled, you explored, like, you know what I mean? It was more robust, maybe, in that sense. And now, because of the internet, you know, you'd have to find people who have no means, who haven't bothered to look up any of the stuff they're selling, mm-hmm. which is not the case that often anymore, right? So, you know, and the dealers all can all, even small dealers all have the ability to put what they put, put what they have on the internet. So as, if there's this race to the bottom kind of thing, like what it used to be, if you found it, you're like, oh, I found this, this book that, you know, you can't normally find easily. Maybe one state over they have it, but you would never know, right? Yeah. How would you know? Now, of course, you just go online in two seconds, you know. Oh, I think I can just order it from them right now. Boom, done. So I think that's a lot of what's kind of lamented. And and like you said, it's it's kind of it's reduced. And there's uh, the upside, of course, the internet brings other kinds of research into play and other kinds of deduction, other kinds of exploration and seeking out, you know, it's in a different mode. Mm-hmm. Um and for some people, it's probably beneficial. For some collectors, like the internet's actually a really good thing because they can add to the collection in ways before that was really difficult. So you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. But I think there's a real kind of loss of a certain romantic side of the trade that you know I don't know if the internet really replaces. Yeah, the analogy I I find is with like Spotify, for example, where yeah. I have a lot of friends who like music and stuff like that, but. Either Spotify just gets too overwhelming or they're too busy with kids and things like this. So they just listen to Beyonce or Rihanna. Not that there's anything bad with that, but it's just like they just settle because they know it's like they'll still be socially accepted <laughs> if they listen to this. Yeah. And then like, whereas I'm like digging in the corners, I'm like, yo, let's see what Brazil's up to these days. Let's see if they're making anything cool in Brazil or something like let's go places. Um, and I'm like digging through the stacks like the old school habit. And it's the um, that 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 ability to dig through the stacks but also know what you're looking for. And when you found it, it's like in those crime shows when they break into an office, they're looking for evidence, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we, yeah. they don't know what it is, but we'll know when we find it. Like that attitude's kind of fading. I find. Yeah. I mean, I think the dealers talk about this kind of, you get this, like this, this electric feeling or this little, you know, when you mm-hmm. touch something when you, and you're like, Oh, there's, so, there's something here. Right. There's yeah. a charge you get, I think they say, um, one of the, per- well, I forget who says that even, um, and I think that's totally right. I think for them, you know, it's a little different because they're tending to think of it as a business on a business level. Um, but I totally get what you're saying because that's how I feel, feel about finding a, a book as a browser. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In a used bookstore, you're like maybe by a writer who never even knew that they wrote that book or you just stumble across anything and you start looking at it and you're like, wow, this is pretty, pretty interesting. And I think you're right. Like one of the problems with Amazon or Spotify or Netflix is you're, you're, Taste is predetermined, kind of, right? Yeah. Right? There's like a sanction. It's like it's like curated in the worst sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of Netflix is funny because if you think back to when like Netflix would send you DVDs, mm-hmm. I feel like people would really watch kind of stuff they weren't sure about because once they got the DVD, they, maybe they'd wait a long 
time to get around to it, but it's like there and waiting. And finally you'd sort of be like, okay, I got to watch this. Yeah. And, but I feel like now with streaming, you can so easily just put it down on the list and never get around it putting forth a little bit of extra effort to watch that maybe slightly more demanding film or something that you're a little more uncertain about, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's a real reduction in our ability to experience different kinds of work. Yeah. That's, I found too, like to kind of pick up back to your documentary. One of the things that, one of the tensions, I guess it was you had specialists and you had gen- generalists in the, uh, in the doc. And I find that really um, engaging because it's like the fact that you could build a whole, uh, life and a whole career uh, just dedicated to one topic like the, you had the one collector who was collecting overlooked women con- uh, female right. contributions and another one uh, that dude who collected all the Mao Zedong stuff um, like it's right. a bold choice to know that somebody else is going to want to want this or connect with it or find it fascinating as well you know what I mean? Yeah I think um, you know I think that obviously depends on the kind of specialization you have well the, the real downside would be if you specialize in something that went entirely out of vogue, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's, like, there's areas of the book trade that are absolutely n- no one cares about it anymore, but they used to. Um, like, a big one is, uh, like, a real obvious one is, like, reference materials, right? Yeah. Like, there's absolutely no one wants reference materials. Because <laughs> that's where, obviously, the online digital is far superior, and it's pretty crazy to, you know, cart mm-hmm. around big encyclopedias anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um so and I think, you know, Bibi, who's in the film, Bibi Muhammad, specializes in um, leather-bound books, which is very specific. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's an up-and-down market a little bit with, with in terms of um, those are really meant for people, a lot of times for people who have libraries that they want to, you know, have kind of, um, I think, you know, kind of certain kind of library, right, where you can build out a, a real traditional kind of library. And leather-bound books are, can be a real big part of that. But it's very specific. So depending on everyone's taste in that, that could, you know, be a real upside or, or be obviously more of a challenge. Um, whereas, like, the generalists can adjust quick, more quickly, I think, to, like, the shifting market. Well, speaking of challenge, this, this is a documentary that has no narrator and no central character. You're not following somebody, like, no. through the highs and lows of, like, trying to become a bookseller or something like a traditional documentary. Yeah. So... What were the narrative elements you were used to like determine uh, which booksellers to feature in the doc? Good question. You know, we, it's kind of it was a bit of a I'd say it was a process. So the the, the sort of initial um, concept that we stuck to was or plan, you know, was that we would represent as much as reasonably possible a, a cross section of the rare book trade, the established rare book trade in New York trying to show, you know, different areas of specialization versus generalization, like you said, different generations, diff- people maybe a little different levels of the food chain. All these are all sort of established enough dealers that they're all do handle, you know, really good books and expensive material, but some are really, really, you know, at the very top in terms of, I think, like Jim, James Cummins is like, a, you know, obviously one of the more most formidable New York and longstanding booksellers. So, you know, he represents, I think, someone who's at the very sort of top of that food chain and handles can handle the very biggest kinds of, you know, books and, and other materials. So I, you know, we, want to do that. we also want to get a group of people who kind of as characters and individuals, I think represented a lot of the different, um, you know, I guess sort of identities in the trade, you know, to show the sort of the, all the different kinds of people that are in it and how there's no stereotype anymore. And that, 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That everyone may be a little eccentric, but it's in a good way. And that everyone sort of in their passion, their specialization, what they're interested in, that reflects on them too, I think was kind of part of it. That, you know, Dave Bergman, who's, who's, who's a specialist in, in science, a lot of science material, um, and he, you know, I think his love for the, the science stuff, the, uh, um, he also collects fossils and, ge- you know, geographical stuff. I think that sort of just sort of informs part of who he is and gives you a different feeling. So, you know, we want, but, you know, we built it, so we built it out organically and we started out with a, a number of people. And then from there, I think, you know, a lot of it's making connections, seeing sometimes people make them for you. They say, oh, have you talked to this person and they can help you sort of find the path to more, you know, interesting people in turn. Um, but a lot of it was saying, you know, this person's given us this and they talked about this, but where, what are we kind of missing and what, what would enhance that? So then we, we just kept sort of expanding out. Is that how Fran Leibowitz got involved? Yeah, totally. So she came in, I'd say, two-thirds of the way through, and we'd been thinking about the need for someone. I, I really wanted to bring someone in who was not inside the book trade, who was just kind of could comment on it a little bit from the outside and wasn't burdened by, you know, having to, like, represent themselves as part of this business mm-hmm. and could kind of provide that kind of outside perspective. And she, of course, can speak incisively about pretty much anything and kind of call you call you out or you know what I mean call yeah. it like it is <laughs> very New York lady. Yeah, but but she did, she is a huge advocate and lover of bookstores and books and has spoken many times about their importance. So she made sense in that sense as well. Um, so and so, so she you know she just came in and we we talked for a while and she I think had a lot of really smart things to say and they kept us honest and. That that's she's one, and you know Susan Orlean was a someone we brought in fairly late on um, as well to talk about some aspects of books as sort of among other things part of our sort of fundamental sort of cultural DNA. And um, she had written about this in her book, The Library Book, and I was really taken with how she talked about it. And I thought she would be really perfect to um, to articulate that for the film. Fran's got that tragic uh, scene you have it towards the end of the doc where she lent a book to David Bowie and yeah. he, he never got it back. I was like, yeah. that's a rookie mistake for somebody who's really like wise. Like you never give out your books. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think it was a valuable book, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it was a big deal. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm glad you made it. You saw that because it's after the credits. Not everyone sees that. Yeah, uh, no, it made me laugh because I'm like, I don't care if it's David Bowie or not. I'm like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't lend my books because you know, like that's one of the f- lessons you learn early on, right? Like if you're giving away a book. Yeah, I think it was still said with love, but yeah. I totally get it. But at the same time, it's totally we, we've all been there, right? Yeah. Like you've we've all lent that book or that record, whatever, mm-hmm. to someone, and of course it's just it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, no, that I felt her pain. Um, and I want to pick up something too that I didn't fully understand, or maybe I was a little bit slow, but yeah. In the documentary, you are documenting a crop of, of booksellers, like a new group that are coming up uh, versus like the old uh, booksellers. And, and they're obviously kind of like just dying off just by age and things like that. But yeah. the, what I didn't understand was the tension between what's new and collectible in the battle between like the institutions and the universities and the dealers. You had this theme where things are shifting in terms of what's rare, what's valuable. But I was wondering how like institutions are kind of influencing that discussion as well, because you kind of alluded to like Columbia, for example, and Columbia is going to be around forever, but dealers will kind of come and go. So how does that influence the discussion of what's new and rare and valuable or what people are seeking? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll answer as best as I can because I'm not a total expert on all things institutional. Yeah. No, I know it's a hard question, but it's just because it was alluded to a little bit in the no, in the doc, so I just want to yeah, kind of no, flesh totally. it out. No, it's a good it's a good question, and um, it's it's like kind of an example of where we had to make decisions, of course, about how far we could go with certain things and still, you know, make the movie not be three four hours long. Um, yes. So I think you know we could have gone deeper into the institutional librarian side of things, but it would have just I think it would have been too tangential past. It would have been. An, Already the movie's very chock full, and I, I feel like that probably would have overloaded us with one thing too many, mm-hmm. um, for one thing. And two, we, I just, we ran out, we didn't really, have, we had to make decisions about what could fit in the movie, of course, like I said. But, I mean, I think we, we, I was, great, it was great, I think, and I was very happy that Kevin Young and agreed to speak to us from the Schomburg Center um, at, uh, of the NYPL, because that at least gave us some institutional presence in the film, and a sense of how the institutional uh, locate, you know, how an institution, a library or whatever, what have you, can can be the ultimate end destination for for stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they got, they have, you know, all kinds of amazing stuff there. I mean, they, we saw a little bit of the James Baldwin archive. They had just got not that long before they just picked up all of Sonny Rollins's archive, which was really awesome. Which I would have loved to have got in there somehow, but they had they weren't ready with it yet. Um, but so I think you know the question is like. I think a real good, you know, I think most dealers and people agree that for the stuff that's really culturally important, it should end up eventually at a at an institution where people can study it or look at it or it can be accessible to the public in some way, right? Or at least people who deserve to see it, who are like academics and researchers and stuff. So I think that everyone pretty much agrees that that's a fitting final destination for important material, but. That said, how does it get there? Well, who determines when it's important enough and all that is yeah. obviously complicated. I think um, I think it's like a lot of this stuff. What's interesting is it can be a very two-way conversation. Like I think you have academia setting a lot of you know um, standards about what's new and and setting the bar about like one what what's in what's relevant to the current discussion in academia, what they're focused on, and what then might have value to obtain you know for collections in the libraries and stuff. So. If um, if certain writers now are becoming much more interesting in academia, then probably, you know, obviously obtaining copies of their work or their archives becomes more compelling for the libraries. Um, But I think at the same time, like, the dealers are always establishing the value and the interest level in what they're finding and what they're bringing to the libraries, too. So I think the dealers can absolutely convince libraries that some of the stuff that they have may be more interesting to them than they realize or that hey, you know, more and more people are really taking an interest in this stuff. You might want to think a little more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it entirely comes from the institutional side. And I think the deals can, can provide input there. Um, I think when you look at, like, when William Reese in the film is talking about his critical mess theory, that he and this guy, Michael Zinman, where they would just buy cop- as many copies as they could of a, of a given book, right? Like, a really old book, say, from usually it's like a 19th century Americanum. Um, and they compare all the different copies and see what they found out, right? Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, they've done something that may be more interesting to libraries than they ever thought, right? Because they've changed how they thought about all those books. Um, so that's kind of the dealers and the collectors influencing libraries. And certainly Caroline, I think, who you, met, who you mentioned, who collected um, women writers in, in, in the wilderness and traveling and sort of pioneer writing mm-hmm. and, and really just going up to the present day, ultimately, um, 
I think her her collection as a whole, I think, has really probably influenced how a lot of libraries might think about some of that material and will then maintain itself as a, a full collection, right? Like it will stay together, which I think is a kind of big deal. If a collector does something that's so unique and interesting and so informative for people that you keep it together as a collection down the line, yeah. like you've achieved something, right? Because you can see the patterns too, right? You can see the history, the evolution, all those things. Yeah, I mean, I think how you people were, how people think about how women functioned historically through these eras, how they functioned, how they were represented in those eras or misrepresented, um, the ro things they were doing that, that were, we weren't effectively chronicled, mm -hmm. and so people didn't realize they were doing. I mean, there's all kinds of things about sort of, uh, what would you call it, recalibrating our understanding of women's history in the United States could be illuminated by her collection, right? Yeah. So, uh, and that may take a lot of thinking and exploring, but it puts it together in a way that that's possible that you could never do just looking at these things on their own. Context, basically. Yeah, it creates a much, it creates that whole entire context within that collection. Yeah. Um, Is it weird for you to be in this position where, like, you make a documentary, you're, you're essentially a filmmaker, but you yeah. make a documentary about booksellers and reading and bookstores and New York City and all this, and then now when you do interviews like this, people are asking you what the future holds for books and totally. bookstores and like, yeah, I, like, is totally, it a weird position absolutely. to be in? Totally, I absolutely feel like it's a weird position to be in. I keep wanting like to bring one of the the people in the movie to like, I wish I could just like beam them over and be like, you answer this question, <laughs> yes. because I don't really feel qualified at all. I mean, I have like an opinion from talking to everyone and mm -hmm. and thinking about this and so on. But really, I think the movie. I mean, I think the movie in many respects just just um, depicts what they're saying mm -hmm. and some differences of opinion. And I think we veered towards the optimistic side in the film because I feel like I want to be on the optimistic side, and I think there's reason to feel optimistic. I, I think there's reason to feel pessimistic too. But I feel like you know I, I want to take the optimistic stance at least because hey, maybe that makes a difference too. Mm -hmm. But, like, I don't feel like I'm an expert on any of this. Yeah, it, it's a weird thing. Like, we've seen, like, this ebb and flow. Like, the bookstores have started to come back, especially during this pandemic now, where you and I were talking about this on email, where, like, people are starting to rediscover, like, oh, yeah, indie bookstores. <laughs> and as Fran Lebowitz says in the documentary, they weren't called indie bookstores when I was growing up right. or when I was younger. They were just called bookstores. Right. So totally. we've seen this kind of like they kind of fade and go away and kind of come back in popularity and resurgence and all kind of like we've seen it. So it's really hard to like know what the tea leaves are, how to read the tea leaves and know that this is going to be the future. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I think it's hard to read the tea leaves on a lot of fronts right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I kind of feel like that's I feel like the Internet sort of has had such an insane impact on all of our lives in the space of some 20 years maybe you know mm -hmm. it's just completely upended all of our society i mean right the, the difference between 1995 and now is so much greater than the difference between 1995 and 1970 right yeah and so i feel like and we're all still trying to read these tea leaves of the internet and like the consequences of the internet have been many upsides but then there's a lot of things with the internet that have caused you know, serious problems in society, I think, and politically, you know, the Internet's had a lot of, enabled a lot of things to happen very quickly around the world that are troubling. And there's no clear pass, passageway out of it, right, right mm -hmm. now, I don't think. Um, but I, so I think in the real book trade, too, like, they've had their own, you know, sort of upheaval and upended, and they're coming out of it in a lot of ways. But 
still, yeah, the tea leaves there are still, you still don't know how it's all going to play out. Um, but I think it's good to, like, represent that still a little bit in the moment before, it, like, hindsight is perfectly there. Because that makes it more interesting that you, the film is documenting the moment itself and you're living in it a little. Yeah. Than it being a completely backwards-looking historical sort of, um, you know, take on something. Yeah, like you said, you tried to get the optimism and the pessimism as well. Both sides kind of represented because it's not like it's not just a simple thing of like the internet is bad and then just kind of that's your conclusion, your bottom line, and then you go take a nap. Yeah, no, but that'd be cheating. That'd be like a cop out, right? That'd be yeah. cheating. And everyone would be like, yeah, "That's bullshit," right? No one would believe that. Yeah, well, and especially because the whole point of like um, good reading is that you are arguing with the page. Right, like there should be any any book should contain ideas that you agree with or disagree with. Or you didn't think about it that way, you know what I mean. So you should be constantly arguing uh, with the page. And yeah, I think all all art or you know provokes you on some level. It doesn't mean it's like provocative in the most like outlandish sense, which is fine too, right? But like in some way or another, it should be provoking you. At the very least, provoking you to think more mm -hmm. or to challenge your assumptions about something or whatever it is. And I think we feel in we feel in implicitly like when something's totally failing on every level at that right you know and that's when you get like sort of the saccharine kind of documentaries that just give you a very canned version of things yeah um, amazon's bad let's go take a nap yeah and and i uh, you know i don't i'm not just just sometimes you come across those and you you just don't you don't buy it right yeah because it's very easy and also they sometimes i think they feel manipulative because you can tell like a little bit that you're being Condal or manipul overly manipulated with the material, like it just doesn't quite feel totally. Especially if you maybe know something about the subject matter. Mm -hmm. So, and that was always like a challenge with the film was to do something. The the aspiration, I think, it's you're never going to do it perfectly. Obviously, like it's it's too tall in order. There's no such thing as a perfect achievement of this. But we should have to make something that would be hopefully like accessible to people who have no experience of any of this, you know, and coming to this totally cold, and do something that people, you know, who are in the rare book world or who our bibliophiles and, and, you know, have some experience and history with this stuff would still feel held up. Before I let you go, we got to talk about the library of the human imagination. Right on. This thing was amazing. How did you even yeah. find it? I've never heard of it. Like, just describe it for somebody. Like, I was like, what is this? I had to rewind it, like, just to watch it. I'm like, what is this place? Yeah, that's, so that's a private library. And it belongs to Jay Walker, who's a, a businessman and entrepreneur. He's known as one of the, maybe most well known as one of the founders, founders of Priceline.com. Um, and it's, you know, one of the, you know, I think biggest, most impressive personal libraries in the world. Um, and he's a very serious collector and has an unbelievable amount of, you know, array of material in there. And because he's sort of categorized it very broadly, I think it allows him to explore any kind of direction he, he kind of wants. Um, and we knew about it. Um, I think Dan first let us, you know, he knew about it from being a book dealer. And he kind of, we were talking about what would, what would be like a super amazing personal library to, to, to go to and represent. He mentioned that as one of the ones. And um, so we reached out to Jay and he was, you know, willing to let us come by and do an interview. And it's, it's not, you know, you can't, not, you can't just go there normally. Um, you yeah, can't yeah. do what's like special visits from people or a school group or, but generally speaking, it's like you can't just walk, you know, to his, his house. But it's it's an incredible incredible space. I I hope we did it justice. It's like three stories tall, the Escheresque, you know, glass, yeah. the stairwells. It's, yeah. 
I don't, you know, the thing is we were there very brief, like really briefly. I, I didn't really get to look at anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was kind of the problem with shooting movies. Like, so you're so busy just doing your interview and grabbing some shots. You don't really get to like have fun looking at the books. Yeah, like that place needs like a cup of tea and like a like a rainy Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, and you just like hang out there for a couple of hours. Yeah, exactly. Before you go, you also do some film uh, and editing work for the Criterion Collection. Yep, and that's aimed at really passionate film buffs. Were you finding any similarities between the way that people kind of respond to film and the passion they have for film with the way that people respond to books? Is there kind of similarities? Good question. Um, I think so because I think I think well for one thing I think you know cr- Criterion puts out with their editions a lot. It's something that's pretty collectible, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, you know there's a very avid group of people for whom collecting the Criterion discs you know it's a real thing. Um, just podcasts and all kinds of things with it. Yeah, and that's beyond just I think the value of their editions as resources and for if you just happen to like like be fond of that one film there's every reason to buy that disc say even if you're not like an overall collector of blu-rays right but um but i think sure i think you know the reasons that people might collect those the or they could, i mean there are people who collect old criterion laser discs yes right yeah um and which are but but which is there's good reason for that too because there are things on those laser discs that you can't find anywhere else mm-hmm. interviews and other special features sometimes they're repurposed but sometimes maybe they haven't redone a new edition or the rights went to someone else i don't know you know so i think totally i think and that would be the same for other film collecting um i, I think the collecting aspect of things is whether it's you know it's vinyl and records or it's comic books or whatever i think it's kind of like similar in its essence so what happens to the doc now? Uh, I guess the inevitable question. I know you're supposed to have a bunch of screenings and things lined up. You're supposed to have some screenings here in Toronto, which sadly uh, will not happen. So what happens to yeah. the doc now? Well, we were in a in a very fortunate position, which is um, we were sort of very you know happy to have come to, you know, that we were actually having a pretty looking to have a pretty good theatrical run for a small doc, and it was going to open in Canada and a number of places and um, in the U.S. a bunch. And we had gotten a week, a little over a week in New York. But that did went really well, but, you know, everything shut down because of Corona. And, and now, of course, it looks like we should have shut down. Had we shut down that week earlier, mm-hmm. um, it would have been a lot better for New York. So yeah. um, despite what, we, you know, annoying, we're obviously glad that we got to play, but it would have clearly been much better off. Um, so, you know, it sucks that, you know, you to get a chance to show a doc theatrically a lot, you know, is, is, a, is a great opportunity and you really, you know, it's what you hope for. Um but on the other hand, I, it's um, it's great that everyone all, we've been able to help you know screen with a lot of theaters here and now in Canada we're doing a bunch um, virtually so that the theaters are getting a part of the cut and not kind of the corporate over- overlords on VOD. So I think you know we're really happy that theaters can at least still be involved and um, it seems like people like find the movie to be like I was talking about. There's some things I want to watch during this time and some things just don't feel right. Mm-hmm. A lot of people seem to feel like this this fits into the corona moment for like what they're looking for um so it's that's nice been nice to hear too beyond just hopefully liking the movie but all right uh where can people find you online or find the information about the doc online yeah well you can find us at our website booksellersdocumentary.com and uh, we're also on instagram and um and twitter too but if you go to the website you can link out from there to all that 
All right, we will leave it there. We covered a lot. We covered uh, classic sci-fi uh, yeah. covers. We covered New York City, uh, the rare book trade, obviously. The documentary is called Booksellers. And we even covered Laserdisc. We even got the word Laserdisc in there at the end there. <laughs> so <laughs> we did cover quite a bit. Not bad. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Hey, Sammy, thanks so much. Nice talking with you. Thank you so much, DW, uh, for hanging out as well. Thanks again, though, for the doc. I really did enjoy it. Um, It was really neat to kind of like see that world. If you hang out in enough bookstores and stuff, like it seems like you do the same thing. So it's like you kind of know that this world is out there, but you don't really know how to like approach it or kind of connect with it. And documentaries are great for that. They're like this little window into the world of like, these are what these people do. I'm like, oh, okay. So you can kind of kind of parachute in, chill with them for a couple hours and then leave. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that because that was absolutely kind of, I think what we were trying to do was to make it a somewhat immersive experience and have a sense of being transported a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. um, and not just be like an in, an informative documentary. Yeah, you just want to see the world, like it's like when you travel to like Spain or something like that or Paris, right? Like you want to check it out as a tourist. Yeah, and some people have asked me like, oh, is 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 it like? do you think like it being in New York would be prohibitive for other people? I think some of them get that. I'm like, what does it matter if it's New York, if you're in, if you're in Vancouver, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I, someone made a movie about Vancouver that was cool and was about Vancouver. Why wouldn't I want to go explore Vancouver right in the movie? You know? Yeah. Well, that's why I brought up, yeah, that's why I brought up the sci-fi and the the old school hip hop. Cause I'm like, these are like universal. Like I know people that would really like get into this, like go down those sci-fi roads or collect old school hip hop and stuff like that. Like they just happen to be in New York while they're doing it. That's the only difference. Yeah. And there's people, the thing is like, this is happening. This, I mean, there's lots of rare book stuff in Canada. There's lots, you know, all over the United States. I mean, New York just happens to be obviously being New York, um, kind of maybe the biggest hub in the U S. So, and this is where all New York based. It's like, was naturally, kind of, you know, we would do it there, but we could have made it about, I mean, we could have made it about all over, but then it just, it would have been too big. Like it would have no limit because just yeah. like the material kind of has no limit. We could just kept pursuing more and more. I mean, there's amazing dealers all over, but you know, we were just, I think we would have had no end in sight. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, what you did do. And thank you as well for, like I said, including the library of human imagination. <laughs> I was like, yo, that was tight. So I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, that's great. No, it's, a, it's a crazy space. I wish I'm a, maybe one day I'll get to go back and actually like look around. Yeah. If you ever come to Toronto, um, our public library has a Sherlock Holmes room. I could send you a link to it. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that would be really cool. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's a whole thing, right? Like. Yeah. No, I'll send you a link for it. It's pretty cool. So if you ever do find yourself in Toronto, just drop by and uh, you can come check it out. So. Yeah, hopefully I'd like to get get over there sometime when this all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. When Whenever we can get back on airplanes. In. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, thanks. Take care, man. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. So cool. If you're into bookstores or books or reading, do your best to track down booksellers. The link is in the show notes. If you ever need any book recommendations, check out girthradio.com and mysummerlayer.com for a new book alert every Saturday afternoon. I provide five, let's go with, say, fantastic recommendations.
What are you reading? Let me know at my pal Sammy for IG, my pal Sammy for Facebook, and my pal Sammy for Twitter. Thank you for listening to me in a Netflix world. Or I guess in this case, thank you for listening to me in an Amazon world. Booksellers, yo.